Texas talking. Oh, what was that that you said? Texas talking. Oh, gonna hoop upside your head. Texas talking. Tell me who can you trust when Texas guys I'm Beth Van Dyne, mayor of Irving. I love the Texas Tribune Tribcast because it gives you all the news you need. Now here's your host, Emily Ramshaw. Thank you. This is Emily Ramshaw here with the Tribcast for the second week of March. I'm joined by executive editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. Reporter Nina Satija. Hey, Emily. And reporter Patrick Svitek, who's on the Tribcast for the very first time. I can't wait. Thank you. Uh, we've invited him here in part to talk about fetuses. Yeah, well, we have some some breaking news this morning. Um, the uh, the controversy. That's a nice way to classify it. <laughs> it is on our website. The controversy of the day at the Capitol is um, courtesy of Representative Stickland. Um, he Every said that, controversy um, these days <laughs> at the Capitol is courtesy. There, there was a group yesterday that distributed some signs to some uh, state representatives that uh, identified them as former fetuses, and some of them put them up outside their office uh, either yesterday or this morning. And um, Representative Stickland um, this morning accused Representative Guerin of uh, tearing down the signs, not only tearing them down, but throwing them in his staffers' uh, faces and intimidating them by doing so. Uh, Representative Guerin says that uh, he was just enforcing the uh, the rules from the State Preservation Board. and Stickland should stop acting like a child. He literally he, said, stop acting like a child. <laughs> He's the chairman of the administration committee and sort of feels... Um, Charlie Guerin, Republican of Fort Worth. He has a Worth. mandate. Right, yeah. feels, feels dominion over these things, right? Uh, it, I want to know about the legislators who are not former that's fetuses. Yeah, that's That's kind <laughs> of... Why did all of them get signed? There are <laughs> still plenty of angles to explore here. <laughs> I know. Yeah, the fo- I know what the follow-up is going to be. Right. Representative so-and-so, hatched, never a fetus. Right. Hatched in, you know, 1979. <laughs> yes. All right, well, moving on from fetuses. I'm glad we've had this little exercise this morning. Um, Patrick has been on the road some. He's been in Iowa with former Governor Rick Perry, who is trying to figure out his presidential ambitions. Uh, Patrick, tell us a little bit about what the reception has been like for him and, you know, what his polling numbers look like versus what you're seeing on the ground there. Sure. Well, if you look at his polling numbers, both nationally and in these early voting states, he's still kind of mid to bottom tier. Um, But, you know, as Abby Livingston reported and as we've kind of talked about, uh, he is certainly connecting with voters. He kind of always has been. And I think it's for two reasons. Um, You know, when his when his team says that he's the best retail politician that there will be in 2016, there is some truth to that. Um, He still is great on the stump in small settings, especially in very small, intimate settings in some of these small cities and towns in Iowa. Um, you know, he remembers people's first names, shouts them out during speeches. He remembers uh, their professions and tries to weave, weave that into his stump speech. Um, and so that's something that I think has always been there. It's always been one of his talents, and it's something that is going to be front and center in 2016. Um, second reason I think he's connecting, and this is maybe less expected, is he's talking a lot about foreign policy. Um, and I think in places like Iowa, um, in New Hampshire, in South Carolina, there is a lot of anxiety uh, about what's going on in the world right now. And that's kind of been a shift um, over the past year and a half or so, at least as it relates to the 2016 field. There is There are all these kind of uh, global dilemmas that are emerging, and they're giving people like Perry an opening to kind of push back against the kind of isolationist streak in their party, cough, cough, Rand Paul. And, um, you know, it's it's been that something that... was a good, that, co- a yeah. believable cost. <laughs> One of my more convincing ones. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's given him an opening, I think, to talk about it and tap into those anxieties, whether, you know, it's uh, him, him talking about, uh, you know, terrorism, ISIS, um, or, you know, the Iran deal. So 
So if Evan were here with us, and thank goodness he's not, uh, he would be We'd telling us- We'd still be us, talking about fetuses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, he would be you know, prepared to say that Rick Perry is still definitely in the running to be the next president of the United States, is a, could be someday a front runner. You know, he likes to make well, he's, these He's the world's best fight promoter, but you know, there's, there's something to this. I mean, you know, Perry's been really, really great at retail politics for a long time. He's very, very relaxed at it. He has this, you know, as you point out, I mean, he's got this- amazing ability to remember names and and pull out that kind of stuff. He really connects that way. And if he connects now in a way that sustains him as we get further into this race and people begin the inevitable stumbles and things, you know, he could um, he could be the tallest piece of rubble at, right. at, at some point. I saw this blog post today that Rick Perry had sent, you know, this like gorgeous bouquet of flowers to this widow in Iowa who'd allowed you know him to use her phone to call in for a radio interview, you know, on the anniversary or something of her husband's death. You know, it just it, it's like totally typical Rick Perry. You know, you really can't rule him out because he really connects with people in a way he's so relatable. I mean, you watch him working a room in Iowa, you know, a room of veterans, for example, and he's down on one knee, eye to eye with people saying their name. I mean, there is something to that that I think is really valuable in these, you know, first run, first and at, test at his, states. At his event Friday night in Webster City, Iowa, that woman was sitting front row. And before he even got into his stump speech, he kind of recognized her late husband and, and said, we're all thinking of him. Called him by his first name. I mean, I don't know how well he knew him, but he called him by his first name. It seemed Probably like they were old all. friends. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, did yeah. you get a sense from the crowds? You know, one of the, one of Perry's problems is that everybody's it's kind of the piano recital problem. Everybody's waiting for the mistake, and and I'm I'm curious if you could sense sure. that in the crowds. Is that still yeah? Going you on? talk about you you talk to just the average voter in, in Iowa, and that doesn't come up a lot. I mean, obviously, you talk to people back on 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 the East Coast and in other kind of media centers, and they talk about how his margin for error is is so slim. Um, that's something I think that comes more from the kind of political media class more so than the actual voters. Um, but if you, you know, if you press them on that issue, they definitely will say, yeah, we know that, um, you know, he's rebuilding himself and, and the margin for error is, is so thin. Um, but there, it's not something that they volunteer. Yeah. And what kind of sense did you get of the ground game he has in Iowa right now? Did you see a lot of staffers running around? Sure. Do we know if he has an operation there officially? Yeah, he does, actually. I mean, he's been working with a, a veteran uh, Republican strategist there named Bob House for a while. It's the guy who he worked with in 2012 there. He just recently formally brought uh, House on board. Uh, he has four kind of field organizers there, and they were at his event in Webster City. And, uh, you know, their their responsibility is to make sure that when he comes to town that the, the events are, are well organized, they get out the word, there's enough people there. And there was a good, I think there was a good turnout for a Friday night in a relatively small town. There were maybe 50 to 60 people there um, at just kind of this roadside diner. Um, so he does have a ground game there, as he does in, in South Carolina. Those were his most recent hires. But he's he's building the staff in those states. And I think he's a bit ahead of the curve as far as numbers of, of, of on the record or, you know, formally hired staffers on the ground in some of these states. I mean, I was thinking the other day, you know, after you have a blunder as high profile as the blunder that Perry had in his last presidential campaign, you know, maybe the ground game at this stage is super important because you have to just sort of like build up this reputation again. You know, you need to be out there ahead of everybody else, making sure you have enough clips, enough video, you know, enough TV mm -hmm. um, that people, you know, start to recognize you in a in a different way. I don't know. I mean, I don't know how you change a narrative about somebody that much. You know, right now, you know, there's a, it's a big enough pack that sort of the game theory on a thing like this is that it's a big enough pack that right now you just don't want to lose. You want right. to you remain standing while the herd, you know, 
gets thin. And if he's still in there when there's when you're down to five or six or seven candidates, then you can address these problems. But mm-hmm. you can you know he'll be a serious candidate because he's a serious candidate at that point. And, and are there run-ins? Did you have any run or has Perry had any run-ins with Cruz out on the trail in any of the um, not any really of the events? You no, were no, at? no, not really. Um, I saw this, one day where there was like supposed to be a press conference and yeah. then Cruz <laughs> was speaking, and so Perry backed it off. It was a little unclear whether whether Perry was going to be giving a press conference at the Iowa Ag Summit. Uh, he did not. Um, Cruz did, and and as you know, as it as it always happens. When Cruz gives a, a kind of gaggle in those settings, it was complete mayhem. Uh, you know, activists and reporters just uh, mobbing him, and um, you know he likes to answer every last question to the point that you're kind of like, "That's enough." Yeah, <laughs> um, right. You know. My hand is tired. Well, the reporters have their <laughs> notebooks in their bleeding. pockets and their arms yeah. are crossed. Yeah. 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 Exactly. So, uh, but no, they did not run into each other. Um, they obviously uh, came right after each other in the speaking lineup at the Iowa Ag Summit. But beside that, there weren't any run-ins that I that I knew of. Cool. Well, um, we're looking forward to getting you back on the trail, and we've had we'll have. Abby uh, in New Hampshire next, right? So we'll be able to send you some dispatches from that next week. Um, Shifting gears a little bit, Nina, let's talk about the absolutely phenomenal, I'm a little biased, but phenomenal project that you and uh, Alexa Ura launched this week called Undrinkable. Basically, it's a look at the tens of thousands, maybe an estimated 90,000 people, you know, in Texas who, and particularly along the Texas-Mexico border, who don't have access, even in this day and age, to clean, reliable drinking water. I know there are a lot of reasons, but if you were summing up for us, you know, why we still have these third world conditions, um, what is the reasoning? Yeah, well, first I'll say that the numbers, one of the issues and one of the reasons is that we don't really have a clear number and nobody's really tracking this problem. So 90,000 is the estimate that we have, the latest estimate on how many folks living on the Texas-Mexico border in Texas don't have any running water at all. Um, any running water, any not running just clean water. water. That's like right. nothing comes out of the tap. Yes. Um, tap. That's the estimate. No tap. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, no centralized water service or even an on-site water service. So no water service at all. Uh, and then you've got some untold number after that, at least tens of thousands, just based on the communities we went to, where the water coming out of their tap is not is, is not reliably clean and safe. So, um, but I think that the there are just so many... Um, problems behind this, so many things contributing to this issue. And a lot of it is, you know, lack of funding um, is only one, and it's probably one of the smaller reasons, honestly. Lack Uh, of funding for what? Lack of funding to uh, pay for hookups to water services for individual households, or lack of funding to build a better water treatment plant, or to build a water treatment plant at all. Um, That's certainly an issue. There was one colonia that we visited uh, outside of Presidio in the Big Bend region where funding seems to be the major issue. It's a small community of 30 families that's five miles outside of the nearest city. And that's just an incredible expense to run water lines all the way out there for 30 families. You're never going to get the return on your investment for doing that. Yeah, but it's 2015. I mean, to me, that's what's preposterous. And I guess the size of the state is immense. But I mean, you saw some like worst total worst case scenarios. I mean, there was a story Mm -hmm. about a woman who bathes in rainwater. You know, remember, it's 2015. Uh, I yeah. mean, there. You know, what were some of the health effects that you were seeing in some of these communities? Well, I'll I'll take Vinton as an example because that's one where we have good data. Once again, there's not great data on the health effects of this of lack of clean drinking water, um, so really the, anywhere in the state. It's on the west side of El Paso by the New Mexico border. That's right. Yes. So this it says El Paso native Ross Ramsey. <laughs> <laughs> right. So not that far from El Paso, you know, and it has a. It, I think it's a population of about two thousand people. So. 
it's it's doable. It's financially doable for them to run their, you know, to connect to El Paso's water system and pipe in El Paso water and uh, connect to their sewer system. But politics, local politics have gotten in the way. There were uh, three city council women who um, voted against the project or often wouldn't show up to meetings so that there wouldn't be a quorum, so there couldn't be a vote at all. And uh, in Vinton, what was the rationale for that? (laughs) Well, I reached one of the city council women. None of them are still in office. Um, But basically, you know, their votes against the project or their lack of showing up to meetings pretty much killed all of these grants. And so Vinton kind of has to start from start all over again. But But their rationale for it was that they're all these sort of like private water service providers. You know, again, it's not like there's there's no water there. Right. Private. So it would have taken business away from exactly. private water okay. Right. Well, that that may have been their motive. The councilwoman that I reached, she claimed that she was like, well, wait a minute, you have to buy out these private water suppliers and nobody's talking about how much that will cost. So, you know, you're putting the cart before the horse. And it's true that, you know, the mayor of Vinton right now told us she has no idea how much it's going to cost to buy out those private water suppliers. So they could get $40 million. So you have is, to buy out know, the contracts that they've got now. Right. And, right. And, and that water, a, you know, a lot of those water providers are quite private. Problematic, you know. You've yes. had like pr- repeated TCEQ findings that the water quality is is poor. And this is what people are, you know. Is it in Vinton where people, in some cases, like won't even drink the water? Yeah, well, pretty much in every community that we went to, mm-hmm. you know, people wouldn't trust drinking the tap water. But in Vinton, there is one private water supplier, as you mentioned, um, that has a very high level of arsenic in the water that they're supplying seems, to residents. Seems like you could bounce them out of the contract. That seems like a pretty pretty easy contract. Very to get difficult out of. thing to do. You'd think, huh. but very inf- difficult. And enforcement is, you know, problematic too because the TCEQ can, you know, file all these reports and and raise questions about it, and you know press for violations, but at the end of the day, you know, their their hands are kind of tied, aren't they? Yeah. Well, what's really interesting is that um, you have all of these agencies, and this is true in, in so many other aspects of, of life and the way government deals with your life, but you have all of these agencies that sort of work on their own and do what they're supposed to do, and nobody's making the connection like, okay, do these people have safe drinking water or not? You know, there's no checkbox for that, you know, at the TCEQ. It's kind of, well, did they meet this standard? Did they meet that standard? And we found a violation for this, but they, they sent us a picture two months later saying that they'd fixed it. But then two months later, it's broken again. Mm-hmm. And there's nobody sort of, you know, in charge of this whole process of like, OK, let's make sure that these people have safe drinking water. I can't tell you how many agencies would say, well, we're not the right agency to talk to. You should talk to this agency. So someone would say, well, we're not a funding agency. Another one would say we're not a regulatory agency. Another would, you know, it was like nobody wanted to just say, here's the person in charge, you know. I'm the right person to talk to, I'm responsible, or I know the people who are responsible. It's very, but you know, just to bring up the health effects, which you asked about, Emily, in Vinton, um, that's really only one of the few places where researchers have gone and tried to document health impacts of this lack of safe drinking water. And they found some pretty interesting results. It's a small sample size. So, you know, it's hard to know exactly what those numbers mean, but they did find an unusually large proportion of the population reporting things like you know, stomach pains and gastrointestinal issues, skin rashes, uh, things that could be caused by water contamination or water problems. There's no way to know for sure. So there's not a direct link in those cases? There's, it's very hard to make any kind of direct link between contaminated water and health. Um, and part of the reason is there could Unless be other reasons. Unless you're like vomiting. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> right you know, E. coli, right. which was an issue in, an, which is an issue in some Vinton households and was an issue in um, another community we went to, which was near Laredo, um, that will have, you know, health effects right away. And there was, a, you know, a case where 
folks were asked to boil their water for more than three weeks in this community of about 10,000 people because the water tested positive for E. coli. In that case, people were immediately getting sick. Uh, what was interesting in that case is I had folks tell me that they, they didn't drink the tap water anyway. They never drank the tap water. But one, one woman told me she had uh, five small kids and they all got sick and she figured that maybe they were like mm -hmm. drinking a little bit of water in the shower mm. when they shouldn't have been because she wouldn't give them tap water anyway. So it was pretty amazing. It is just fascinating that, you know, you go to certain foreign countries and they tell you don't drink the water, but mm -hmm. there are places in our own state where, you know, you can't right. turn on the tap and drink. So, so I mean, what is the legislature prepared to do anything about this? I mean, I, I feel like this is a pretty enormous Has challenge. This up and said, I'll solve this. Right. I'll try to solve this. Or we had a water event. <laughs> yeah, right. story. They've been yeah. tweeting about it a lot, but does that translate into actual action? And are they mostly Democrats who represent the border and therefore, mm -hmm. you know, don't have that much sway anymore? Maybe in we the should put the legislature on one of these water services. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> it would be. Well, we did talk to some border legislators and um, who said, you know, I don't drink the tap water when I go back to my district. Um, and I think that there's really honestly a sense of resignation. Um, we didn't. There weren't a lot of lawmakers who were easy to reach on this issue, even yeah. those from the border. Uh, it's been an issue for them for a long time. Maybe they haven't gotten much traction on it. So I think there is kind of a lack of political will. We have not heard from anybody who said, who said I'm going to take up the charge. One of the things the legislature may do is they may fund the Economically Distressed Areas Program. Sorry to sound wonky, but that's kind of a, a, a low-interest loan program for you know, small communities or not necessarily small, but poor communities that need help uh, with their water service or their water projects. But you're talking about, you know, loans that they'd still have to pay back. Um, and that's right. we're at a point where most of these communities really may not have the wherewithal to do that. So um, I don't even know, you know, even if there were lawmakers out there who were really gung ho about this and said, I want to tackle this head on. Uh, how they would do that is very difficult. Local control is another issue. Um, and this is something we heard from every agency, like the TCEQ. Well, you know, we can tell uh, Webb County, which runs the water system for these communities near Laredo, we can tell them that they're violating this and we can find them $60,000 for that, but we can't really take over their water system. I mean, it's it's local jurisdiction. The local health department deals with it. The local water department deals with it. It's not really our responsibility. And so that's one of the issues, too. Um, is we heard from a lot of folks where we think that the state should have some more control over this, but then you 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 went into the issue of well, local communities are like, well, I want to run my own water system, and you know you can't take that take that away from me. So it's it's a very very complicated problem. Well, you know, lawmakers aren't exactly hurting for cash right now. Um, Ross, talk to us a little bit about what's going on with all the sort of drama around the spending cap, how much they're going to cut in taxes versus how much extra money they're going to spend. You know, do they have money in their budget to, to try to address some of these issues? Well, I mean, if they wanted, I mean, if, they've got a bunch of money is the, is sort of the problem. A bunch. A yeah. bunch. <laughs> the exact <laughs> yeah, they, term. They've, they've got a quadzillion dollars. Um, <laughs> it's a precise term. They've got, they started with base budgets that are slightly under about $100 billion when you're talking about general revenue funds. This is the money the state has. It's not federal money. It's not dedicated money. About $100 billion. And the controller says they could spend or they'll have about $113 billion coming in from current tax and fee collections and all of that kind of stuff. And they have a constitutional spending cap that says you can only grow the budget at a rate that matches uh, an approved estimate personal income growth over the next 30 months. And that's about 11.6%. So they said, so their cap is about $107 billion. So if you're, if you're keeping score at home, it's about $107 billion that they can spend. It's about $113 billion 
available to spend if they wanted to vote to say, let's go ahead and spend some more. And then there's another pot of money, the state's rainy day fund, that's another $11 billion. So if you sort of shake all of that out, they could go home at the end of the session having written a budget and leaving $17 billion um, over on the side just in, in state mm-hmm. savings accounts cash. and stuff. So, you know, there are a lot of them that are looking at it and saying, you know, we don't want to obligate ourselves to ongoing spending with some of this money, but you can take care of some one-time expenditures and one-time things if you wanted to. Like you could do a property tax cut right now. You could do a, you could um, cut the franchise tax. You could spend some money on pension liabilities. You could spend some money on debt. You know, there's a list. As long as you know everybody has a list, you could spend it on water. Um, mm-hmm. The question now is whether they're going to do uh, the the immediate fight is over. What kind of tax cut are they going to do? Um, you know the. You know, they all want a tax cut. They all want a different one. Uh, small businesses want to uh, get rid of the franchise tax. Big businesses would rather see a sales tax break or a lower property tax rate. Um, homeowners want higher homestead exemptions. It's a food fight. Um, and it's basically, you know, if when they're cutting the budget, everybody is fighting not to have their program cut. When they are looking at a lot of money, everybody is fighting for the dollar on the table. And that's kind of where we are right now. And so... Where does the spending cap then necessarily come into the I mean, how much more can they spend or what's the argument around, you know, changing the spending cap or sort well, of quietly yeah. getting around the spending cap? So Texas has a goosey spending cap. The spending cap doesn't limit the size of the entire budget. It limits the size of the state generated non dedicated tax revenue. So the gasoline tax, for example, is dedicated three quarters to highways and one quarter to education. Because that's dedicated money, it doesn't count against the spending cap. So one of the tricks is, hey, let's dedicate some of the money that otherwise is not dedicated, and we can scoot some spending through the spending cap. This is the Robert Nichols bill that passed the Senate. Robert Nichols is a state senator from Jacksonville, a Republican, an engineer, a former member of the Texas Department of Transportation. And his bill would take the revenue or some of the revenue generated by sales taxes on motor vehicles and dedicate it to roads. And by dedicating it, it would get, both get some road money and take all of that money out of the spending cap discussion. So that that's that's one way. There's another piece of legislation proposed by Jane Nelson and supported by Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Jane Nelson's the head of the Finance Committee, Republican from Louisville, uh, Flower Mound, um, somewhere up there. Yeah, it, some, cha- it some, changes every session. Some Denton County <laughs> thing. Um, and it would say the spending cap does not apply to money used for tax cuts or for debt payments. Uh, Voters would have to look at that first. A lot of this has to do with, you know, the legislature by a simple majority can say, you know, this time let's blow off the spending cap. They did it in 2007. They've done it before. Um, They're scared to death to do it again. And so whenever they run up against one of these things where it looks like they might go over the line, they instead come up with a constitutional amendment that says, well, let's ask the voters. Kind of a mother may I approach to legislation. So where is Strauss in all of this? I think he's just happily watching the Senate fight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's one of those things where you can just sit there and watch the Senate have the fight and, and wait for this to come to the House. All of this has kind of started in the Senate. And in some ways, some of what the Senate has proposed looks contrary to things that the Senate has proposed. So there's a lot of sorting out to go here. Mm-hmm. 
Well, if you are interested in hearing more about the budget, you'll be able to hear a sort of special uh, edition of the Tribcast that Ross and his colleague, Aman Bathija, are launching called Budget Line. We're actually launching the first one uh, tomorrow, which is Thursday. Uh, it'll be an occasional series if you're a budget wonk, and even if you're not, it is awesome. So look forward to hearing that. Um, one other sort of you know battle that's playing out in the Senate right now that has spilled over into the House is a, a conversation about funding women's health care in, and in particular access to to um, cancer screenings. There's a joint state-federal cancer screening program right now. Um, and you know, right now, Planned Parenthood clinics are still able to get some of that funding for cancer screening. And so there is this debate playing out. The Senate would like to sort of reclassify how that funding is structured and basically say, uh, we're going to tier this, you know, put it into three tiers. And if you are a Planned Parenthood clinic, you're going to fall into tier three, which is going to make it very difficult, if not impossible, for you to get any of this funding for, you know, cervical cancer and breast cancer screenings. Um, This is interesting because it's not just Planned Parenthood clinics that would fall into that third tier. There are a whole bunch of other specialty private clinics that provide just a ton of cancer screenings that would lose their funding under this. Um, it's also uh, uh, pretty interesting because Planned Parenthood clinics are already prohibited from providing any abortions if they receive taxpayer dollars. So these are not clinics that are already receiving, are already providing, you know, abortions. These are clinics that are largely just providing family planning and also cancer screenings. So um, there was a hearing on this issue yesterday, and Sarah Davis, the Republican state representative in the uh, House, basically came out and said, you know, women are going to die over this. And hey, Texas Senate, are you really sure you want to do this? You know, this puts a lot of people at risk. Uh, Sarah Davis is a cancer survivor. So obviously, this is, you know, a pretty firsthand issue for her. But you know, watching this play out has been has been pretty interesting. So um, I think we're going to, you know, see some little fights over this. I think anybody who thought that Planned Parenthood, you know, was was totally out of the out of the way and there wasn't going to be another fight over Planned Parenthood this session was mistaken. Well, it's funny that the fight has moved from, you know, a lot of these fights were originally or all of these fights were originally about abortion and whether, you know, you were going to allow it in the state and where and how much who was going to pay for it and all that. And now it seems to be about Planned Parenthood, no matter what they do. If they opened a snack stand, it would be, you know. We'd outlaw snacks. Yeah, I think just the, the Planned Parenthood brand is so politically poisonous to some members of the of the ledge that it doesn't even matter if it's it's about abortion anymore. It sounds like. Yeah, I'm curious to see how this ends up playing out because this one, you know, in, in the last time there was a big fight over over Planned Parenthood, it was with the Women's Health Program, which was a joint state federal program. The state got a huge match from the federal government, and the state said basically, "Hey, we're going to work work to make sure Planned Parenthood cannot be part of this program. We're basically writing Planned Parenthood out of it." And the Fed said. Oh, really? That's how you want to play? Well, we're cutting off the funding. (laughs) So this is another case. And so Texas has had to find the funding for the women's health program and continue to run it, you know, with state dollars versus this major, you know, it was a nine to one federal match. And so this time around, you know, I would be surprised if the Fed sat back and said with this cancer screening program, you know, oh, really, this is how you want to play. We're going to leave our money in. I mean, I would not be surprised if Planned Parenthood or if the federal government says we don't want to contribute any money to this program. So is there not enough money right now for all the, to go around for all the clinics? And that's why they're tiered or sorry, that's an obvious question. No, just... so they're they're not tiered right now. And yeah. so I think that, you know, these different clinics apply for funding and get it. Um, you know, the tiered... Uh, 
the tiered sort of mechanism is exactly the same thing they did to the women's health program. And they basically okay. said, we want and, and the way the, that Republican lawmakers have framed it is, you know, we want to make sure comprehensive public health care clinics are the first ones that get access to this funding mm-hmm. because they're providing, you know, women who, with the widest range of services. The reality is in Texas, a lot of women, you know, want to get reproductive health care. And when they think about cancer screenings or they think about birth control, you know, the first thing they think is Planned Parenthood or is a specialty reproductive health care clinic. You know, under this new tiered structure, a a lot of the, um, you know, women's health groups really say that for this cancer screening program, you know, there would be large swaths of the state where basically there is no place to go to get, you know, a a cancer screening, a reproductive health care exam. And I think that's what Sarah Davis was looking at and saying, basically, you know, I'm, this is not going to work for, for us. And just to clarify, is she opposed to the tiered system or is she just opposed to Planned Parenthood falling at the, the bottom of the, the tiered system? She's opposed to the tiered mechanism. And I think it's because not just Planned Parenthood, but these other clinics would, would fall into it. She's basically, you know, stands mm-hmm. up and, and shouts about it whenever legislators basically try to get in between the doctor-patient relationship. You know, she is, um, you know, basically the only Republican legislator right now. I'm trying to think of any other Republican legislator legislators who, you know, really stand up and, and, you know, throw their fists around with this kind of legislation. But can you think of anybody else? No, I'm, I'm stuck on the visual image of throwing your fists around. Oh, well, you know. <laughs> no, I'm teasing. Um, yeah. No, not, I mean, she's been the most um, vocal about it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's, I really think that some of us looked at this legislative session and thought, you know, we weren't going to have a giant skirmish over over Planned Parenthood that we'd sort mm-hmm. of done everything we could. And then I think folks just realized that this, you know, cancer screening program was sitting there. And I don't think we're going to see big movement on abortion legislation this session. Mm-hmm. So I think the fight is going to continue to be in the budget where, frankly, a lot of the fights are going to be this well, session. Well, you know, a lot of this will accelerate after Friday, which is the bill filing deadline. And we'll see, you know, most, I mean, they'll, they'll file some bills late. They'll get permission to file some bills late. But, you know, we'll be able to look at kind of the array of fight opportunities ahead of us. And, and the legislature, I think, is about to, you know, we've kind of gone through that period at the beginning where they make all the relationships they destroy at the end of the session. And we're ready to start fighting, I think. So what does the bill filing deadline entail? Then what can we start doing next week? What will we be talking about on the Tribcast next week? I think committees are about to fire up and we're about to, you know, some of them already have, but I think the committees are going to be going in earnest. The budgets are going to start, you know, the House budget is going to be put together here within, you know, a couple of days. And uh, the full-blown session that's about 20 things at the same time, I think will be underway pretty quickly. I think that's what we'll be doing next week and the week after. Sounds good. Uh, Well, in the meantime, check out Ross's Budget Line podcast coming up uh, on Thursday. If you have questions or comments, email them to tribcast at texastribune.org. We'd like to thank Shiny Ribs, as always, for doing our music. And on behalf of Ross, Nina, Patrick, and our producer, Todd, this is Emily. Thanks for listening. Aren't we all former fetuses?